Hello and welcome to Haunted Hometowns with Blake Lambert Hack. That's me. Welcome back for those who listen weekly to this true crime paranormal podcast. For those that are new, welcome. This season I'm covering cases, true crime, paranormal, whatever the case may be, in Venice, Italy, the gorgeous, the stunning, the beautiful. I have never been to Italy, so if anyone wants to take me, I am very much available. I have a friend getting married in Italy in a year or so, and they just got back from a trip to check out the venue, and it's in wine country, and I am very jealous. One day, when I have money and a man, there's a venue, there's a venue on the Mediterranean And I think it's off the Adriatic Sea, similar to Venice, but I think it's farther south, like in the heel of the boot. I think it's Puglia. Anyway, there's a venue there that is gorgeous, and I would not hate not only visiting, but getting married one day, a destination wedding, if you will. There's also a venue just south of Naples that looks gorgeous. But I guess I need to visit first. I mean, all of Italy looks gorgeous. I mean, it's Italy. Beautiful. Can't say no. The food. The culture. The sights. I'm in. Always. I've also been watching the new Netflix show, life after death with tyler henry and if you don't know tyler henry he's a medium who i believe he was first on tv on the kardashians if i'm not mistaken i think that was like 2016 or something like that and he read he read them to filth no he he did like a reading for them um but then he had his own tv show hollywood medium or something like that i can't remember I'm not super into mediumship for whatever reason. You know, there's the Long Island medium. There's a lot of people who claim to be mediums. And I'm not going to say I don't believe in mediumship. But it's similar to religion in that sense. That if you, you can't see it, you have to believe in it. And that's fine. More power to y'all. But I'm not worried about it. Whatever's beyond, it's beyond. And um, maybe one day I'll figure it out. Maybe one day I won't. But who's to say? I don't need to hear about it. That's also coming from someone who hasn't gone through a lot of grief that these people on these shows go through for, for the most part. You know, they're relaying people who have messages from people who have passed away really close to these people. So... For a lot of people, it does help them move past whatever 
trauma they're experiencing. And in that sense, whether mediumship is real or not, I'm all in. If this person can help this family or people move past grief, absolutely. Do it. Go for it. You're not hurting anybody. You're making people feel better and solve traumatic issues in their life. I'd also suggest seeing a therapist for long-term effects, but you can start with a medium. That's fine. For those who don't like, for those who don't know what a medium is, it's talking to people beyond. I don't want to say beyond the grave because I do think a lot of mediums say that they can, they can speak to or have visions of people who are also living. But people who fake being mediums, or not, I don't want to, again, I don't want to say fake, but people who don't have that ability, but still use the term mediumship to do their job, use cold and hot readings. And cold readings is just while you're sitting in a reading and using your intuition to read people's body language to take things that they say and incorporate it into the readings. Whereas hot readings are information that you gather before doing the reading. And most mediums like use a combination of the two. But then of course there are people who say that they actually are getting visions from people beyond the grave, so on and so forth. But I've just been watching his show and it's moving and whether he is legit or not I don't care the show's great more power to him I'm glad he's helping one family at a time get past grief and trauma in their lives but we're gonna move on tonight I'm going to be discussing the columns of San Marco and San Todaro and these columns both reside in Venice Italy of course more specifically, the columns have been part of St. Mark's Square, or Piazza San Marco, since the early 1200s. St. Mark's Square is known as the principal public space in Venice. So when you see like photos and videos or movies that take place in Venice, the huge square that everyone's gathering around or in, and there's a lot of street vendors or people just hang out or there's museums that surround the square and stuff that's st mark's square a lot of people just call it the square and in the square you'll find st mark's basilica which again i'm sure you've heard of it's a very famous cathedral there's also st mark's clock tower st mark's campanile or bell tower a few museums amongst other well-known buildings and of course i'll post photos on social media so check out instagram and twitter at haunted hometowns for those photos but within the square and near the south end of the square are two freestanding columns called san marco and san todaro and the pillars look over the laguna or the lagoon, Laguna Veneta, or again, what everyone just calls the lagoon, which is what flows into the Grand Canal, which is the main canal of Venice. 
and his sister pillars were made of marble and granite and designed after the city's two patron saints. A winged lion, which is the symbol of St. Mark, and the other is of St. Todaro, who protected Venice. St. Mark is someone in the Bible, so if you care to learn more, crack that book open and have a long read. But all you need to know is that he was born in Jerusalem and died in Alexandria, Egypt. But he is buried in St. Mark's Basilica, which was built in 829. However, the basilica was destroyed and then rebuilt, of course. But it was built better, quote-unquote. I don't know what makes it better. Larger, maybe? More decorations? A better layout, probably? The new building was built in 1071. The restored basilica is the one that still stands today. St. Mark was on his way to Alexandria when he stopped in Venice for the night. He had a dream where an angel in shape of a winged lion appeared and told Mark, in Latin, quote, Peace to you, Mark, my evangelicist. Here will rest your body, unquote. I hate to break to anyone, but if anyone or anything is coming to you in a dream telling you you're going to die, it's a nightmare. That is no angel. That thing shows up and is like, hey bud, your body's going to be here when you die. It's like, okay, is it going to happen tonight? In a month? Don't tell me where my dead body's going to rest if you're not going to tell me how, when, or where. Well, I guess she did. Or the angel did say where. But you know what I mean? Like, that's not helpful. It's not soothing. So Mark, after that dream, Mark continued to Alexandria. But on his way, told a fisherman he stayed the night with. He stayed with this fisherman, is what I'm trying to say. And during that time, he told a fisherman about his dream. And not long after, Mark died in Alexandria. But because of his dream, he was moved to Venice. And that's also why the symbol of a winged lion is everywhere. And that's why it's also on top one of, on one of the columns. On San Marco's column, a winged lion. Now, that's the folklore of it all, of course. Why his body's in Venice is anyone's guess. Do I think it's because he relayed to a fisherman that an angel told him that's where he would lie? No. (laughs) Because what if he didn't say anything? Then what? His body would have been buried in Alexandria and the angel would have been wrong. I don't know. But the second column, San Todaro, is slaying a dragon, I guess. Now, I've seen this photo. I think it looks like a crocodile. Maybe it's supposed to be a crocodile resembling a dragon. I have no idea what this creature is, but it's got a spear in it. (laughs) 
Santadaro was a Byzantian Byzantian Byzantine he was a saint and warrior from Greece who lived in the 4th century and he's considered the first protector of Venice he was the first he was the first patron saint and again 4th century and then along came Saint Mark and he was like I'm also a patron saint so the two of them side by side protect in Venice winged lion bud slaying a creature two pillars Saint Mark Square they're really pretty and you don't usually see columns standing freestanding usually they're propping up a building or for decorations on a house what have you but these are just freestanding in the middle of the square Back in the day, Constantinople was ruled by Greece, and Venice was a subject city of the Eastern Roman Empire. The pillars were gifts from Constantinople, and each pillar was transported by their own ship because of their size. They were huge. There was also a third pillar that was sent to Venice at the same time, However, a storm rolled in just outside Venice, sinking the third ship and the column with it. And the people within Venice searched the sea for a very long time, but they could never find the column. And I believe recently historians have started looking for the column again. No one knows what decorated the top of the third column, but it was to match the other two. Now, do I believe this third column exists? No. Why three columns? It's not very symmetrical. You only have two patron saints, and that's what the other two are. So what's this third one supposed to be? And no one can find it over centuries? I don't think that third column existed. Maybe Constantinople was like, yeah, we sent a third one. Maybe they were asked to send three and they just forgot. The work order got lost. Or maybe they built it and it broke and they're like, we're not doing that again. You know, again, these things are huge. And back then, it would have taken so much work to create them. So whatever that third column is doing, the other two columns made it to shore but it took even decades later before they were even propped up in St. Mark's Square due to their size and weight. You'd think it would be easy to find how tall they are, but the internet was useless for the first time probably in my entire life. All I found were descriptors like, quote, tall or, quote, monolithic, as if the pillars weren't standing today. I know they're tall. I know they're monolithic. You can go see them today. Let's go to Venice and check them out. I would love someone to take, not a ruler, what is that? A tape measure. And just let me know how tall they are. I mean, no one's bothered the two decorations on top of them, so they have to be crazy tall. All I'm thinking of is Mulan when she, like, wraps the two weights around and, like, scooches her body up and then sits on top of one. They're kind of that tall. 
And there's honestly so little information about these columns because they've been part of Venice for thousands of years. And I believe the Santadaro pillar, or at least the top of it, of, of the dragon and him killing the dragon, I believe the one in the square is a replica. And the original is inside the nearby Doge's Palace. I think the lion, though, in the square is the original. However, it was removed and moved to Paris for a little bit. I guess to put it on display in a museum. I don't know why. But it was returned in 1815. It was also removed during World War II, which, genius, as you should. Unfortunately, we've lost so much art during World War II, it's insane. It's really unfortunate. I always think about the Amber Room during World War II and how that's just been missing since then. And people believe it's on a train that's underground somewhere. If you don't know what I'm talking about, the Amber Room's like a... It's literally a room from Russia that was made completely of amber stones. It's Pictures of it are gorgeous. But of course, Nazis stole all of that. And all the thousands of artwork that was inside private homes and public museums, but in allied territories. It's really sad, but... Italy was smart. They were like, we're not going to chance it. We don't chance bombing. So we're going to take these off until the wars ended. However, they didn't put them back on until 1991. So I don't know what they were doing in storage for that long, but the initial idea was smart. So again, I don't know if both of the toppers that you see in the square today are real or replicas. But some, somewhere I read, it said that Santadaro's is nearby on display inside to keep it looking sharp. But the line might be out and about. I don't It seems weird to have one original piece there and one not, but maybe something happened to the Santadaro's and they don't want it to get worse. Anyway. <clears throat> As I mentioned, it took a while before the columns were erected. So they just laid by the lagoon for decades. Until a man named Nicholas Baratire. Oh, these Italian last names. Baratire. I don't know. Nicholas. Found a way to raise the columns. It's B-A-R-A-T-T-I-E-R-E. Look him up. He was a skilled builder and known for creating an elevator counterweight. And I have a picture that, I, again, I will post. It's actually fascinating to see how they did this back then. But without the counterweight, he would have never been able to build the bell tower that's also part of the square. He's also credited to building the first bridge in Venice. So he... That's... That architect knew what was up. He had a lot going on for him. The method Nicholas used to raise the columns was called, quote, water on the ropes, unquote. He used strings of hemp 
that when wet increased the diameter so these strings increased got wet and they blew up or like yeah they got bigger but when they also got wet they decreased in length so once the ropes were tied to the column they would wet them and shrink then would prop the column up with a wedge does that all make sense am i making sense again i'm gonna post a photo online but it's this big wooden structure and then in the middle of that wooden structure is the column laying down they tied all these hemp strings up under the column up onto this big wooden structure and then they'd wet the hemp strings and they would get a little wider in diameter which probably strengthened them but they would shrink in length and because they had so many of them tying around the column it lifted the column off the ground a little bit and once it lifted up a little bit the people would shove wedges underneath to keep the column off the ground a little bit and then they'd wet the hemp strings again and they'd shorten even a little bit more and then they'd shove another wedge under there to keep it the column from falling down to the ground. Ingenious. And I can only imagine how long it took them to raise those fuckers in 1127. As a thank you, the Venice government allowed Nicholas to gamble even though the city strictly prohibited the game, he held a gambling den between the two pillars every night. He's the only person allowed to legally gamble in Venice. So you can only imagine the who's who is at that gambling table. One gambling, I know it's every night, but like one gambling table, the rich and powerful were there every fucking night, I bet. And that gesture from the government ended with Nicholas's death. After he died, no more gambling, still can't do it. However, the space between the two columns, which isn't a huge space, but instead of gambling, the government held public executions in the square between the two columns. The charged would have their back to the lagoon, facing the square and the clock tower, knowing exactly their own time of death, which is a little shitty. It's grim. I get that these people did horrible things. At least that's what we're made to believe, that they deserve to die. But A, to do it in public is horrible and not only that you have to see the seconds ticking down until you're beheaded or whatever the case may be I think that I mean that has to fall under cruel and unusual punishment I don't know what Venice laws are and obviously they've changed since then but that's horrible most times before the charged were beheaded in the square, they were often tortured 
and different punishments would happen depending on the crime. The only people to escape the torture and just go straight to the beheading were nobles because they were viewed as being too good for torture, which doesn't make any sense. But are we surprised? No. Some punishments included public humiliation, which honestly is some kinks today. Some people love to be publicly humiliated, you know, spit on, pushed over, clothes ripped, smacked. And look, as long as you're good and you consented to it, have at it. But yeah, public humiliation, public mutilation, that on the other hand, no thank you, or a combination of the two. If you were accused of witchcraft, you were burned to purify your soul. A radical reformer was strapped to a pole and had his body pierced with red hot tongs. I, I believe I mentioned this in an earlier episode, episode, but I went to the medieval torture museum in Chicago. I think there's another one in Florida, but the one I went to in, is in Chicago. And they have, they walk you through all the torture contraptions from back in the day, but they have these semi-realistic mannequins in these situations. And so reading these is just throwing me back to some of these mannequins they have over like a flame or in a barrel of water or having bugs eat them whatever the case may be but yeah it's when they say torture they mean torture this isn't like making me watch how i met your mother on repeat for six weeks straight like this is full on body is pierced with red hot tongs and his tongue was ripped out horrible and let's say you murdered someone you would have your hand or hands cut off and you were made to wear your hands around your neck while you were paraded around town so everyone knew what happens to you if you commit a crime And then you're taken to the square and beheaded. I guess that's what they mean by humiliation. It's like, look at him. He has his hands around his neck. Where are your hands? That's not funny. Other crimes would have you stripped and whipped in public. Again, it came today, but stripped and whipped. Um, A priest that committed treason was hanged by his foot for a day while bystanders stoned him and that's that's another thing I'm not sure how I feel like again he's upside down by his foot look at that loser whatever um but then for bystanders to stone him can't we just leave him alone I mean it's treason but like he didn't I don't know don't stone people. Like, I could never imagine myself picking up a stone and actively throwing it at someone. That's 
I don't get it. And I know there was some kind of, like, okay, so after he was being stoned, he was taken down and beheaded, of course. There were full-on rituals as well. So those condemned were marched through town wearing robes and carrying candles as a sign of their lack of faith. And everyone in town was expected to attend these kinds of rituals. And that's kind of what I also think the stoning is similar to. It's like, well, you're walking by this guy upside down and there's probably guards or what, like not, they weren't called police, but you know what I mean, back in the day. And I'm sure if you walked by them, they kind of expected you to throw a stone. And if you didn't, it was like, you better watch yourself. Like when they had these rituals, you had to show up to these rituals or you were thought of as being part of the group that didn't have enough faith or maybe part of treason. Everyone was so skeptical back then. Everyone, calm down, trust your neighbor. Let people have lack of faith. I always think of Cersei Lannister from Game of Thrones when I talk about being paraded around town in these robes and candle. You know, when she had to walk through the city naked while the church rang a bell chanting, Shame! That nun. Shame! But that's very similar to what actually happened. Like, everyone had to show up and watch it. And then if you didn't actively shame them, you were also thought to be part of the problem. And many times, the executed would be hanged on a gibbet and placed around town or the entrance to the city to warn people to cut the shit. A gibbet is that, like, stake. Or like that cross that they hang them up on. But I'm glad we've learned a little bit about how scare tactics don't work. Obviously, we still have some way to go. But there were so many other ways the Renaissance tortured commoners. And I don't know exactly what Venice used regularly because Venetians were notorious for keeping secrets. And I'm sure they used a lot of what I talked about, but it was said during the 16th century that you were more likely to obtain a secret from God than to learn secrets from the Venetians. Tight-lipped. Though apparently, strapado or rope torture was a Venetian favorite. They would tie your hands behind your back with rope then suspend you dislocating your shoulders they'd sometimes add weights to make the pain worse but they couldn't torture them for longer than an hour or it'd result in death so they had like their stopwitches out you know that gun at the beginning of races string them up dislocate people's shoulders from behind Only an hour. Horrible stuff. However, you would really have to commit a horrific crime to be treated that way. And to them, lack of faith 
was a horrific crime. Treason was a horrific crime. Obviously murder. Stealing, I believe you had your hands cut off, but I don't think you were beheaded necessarily. Like the saying, eye for an eye. If you stab someone, if you even if it's on, on accident, if you stab somebody's eye, then they're allowed to do it back to you. That doesn't sound very fun. I, oh my God, the movie with Brittany Snow. Would you rather? That horror movie is so good. But there's a scene where he has to either, I think, I don't know what he's asked to do, but he refuses to do it. So the other option is like cutting his own eye with a razor blade. Horrific. Hated that. That, if I look back through all the horror movies I've seen, that scene, one of my least favorite. Another is in case 39 all those bugs in the bathroom I think about that a lot too that's no fun I hate that the Venetian Republic wasn't overly thrilled with capital punishment from 810 to 1804 almost a thousand years only 691 people were put to death by the government And I know 691 people sounds like a lot, but in almost a thousand years for, okay. So for like a better understanding of how few that is, the United States has put over 1500 people to death since 1976. Now, obviously we're talking about a city versus a country, but we're also talking about a thousand years versus 50 years. Like, that's insane. There's a pretty famous case regarding a man named Biasio Cagno or Carnico. Biasio had both his hands chopped off and strung around his neck, as I was talking earlier. I can't imagine having your hands cut off back then. Because you know it wasn't as smooth as it is today. You know, there was, there definitely would have been a couple chops. And I doubt they cauterized his wrists. You know, if you're, if you did something that bad and they want to make an example out of you, they're letting you bleed while they parade you around the town. They're not cauterizing shit. I don't even know if they knew what cauterizing was or how to do it correctly. Ugh. They did parade him around, of course, with his hands chopped off and around his neck. And there was just a trail of blood that went wherever they did it, paraded him around. And then into, you know, between the pillars. He was beheaded between the columns of San Marco and San Tadaro. He was then dismembered into four parts. Don't ask me what the four parts were down the middle both ways one arm one arm one foot one foot flying purple people eater 
Oh my god, have you seen Nope? Nope was so good. I still have a couple questions about it. But the visuals. And Kiki Palmer. Ah! Kiki Palmer killed it. Like, she's so good. I love Kiki. But that movie is great. If you haven't seen it, it's kind of like a play on one-eyed, one-horse, flying purple people eater. Anyway, yeah, he was uh, split up into four parts. And then those four parts were displayed on pitchforks around various parts of Venice. His shop was burnt to the ground and it was to hide the horrific act he was charged with. However, the building that stands there today is called Riva di Biasio, so no one can forget the crimes made by Biasio. I don't I the shop today is something random. And it has a completely different name and has had a completely different name for a very long time. But everyone just refers to it as Riva di Biasio. So Biasio was known as a oh, I'm gonna butcher this. Laganager. That's a very American of me. I did not put the emphasis on the right words, but Luganager, uh, basically it's someone who just makes Italian sausage, but a very specific kind of sausage. Salsiccia a metro, or sausage by meter. So it's those long sausages that you see are kind of like curled up. It's like one long sausage instead of links, if that makes sense. Salsiccia. Uh, this kind of sausage was made fresh and it couldn't be stored like salami or other cured pork like prosciutto or capicola or mortadella. I'm not, I'm not a big pork fan. However, I love prosciutto. I love bacon. I love ham. But like Italian sausage and like pork chops and stuff. Eh, meh, meh, meh. But it makes sense for Venice to be big into this because Bologna, the town known for their pork, is not very far from Venice. Anyway, Biasio was he made this kind of sausage famous and it was and Venice is known for starting the longer sausages but you couldn't store it so he was most known for making meat stew with it so obviously you would sell the sausage the sausage by the meter for people to take home or you'd eat it like a sausage but you couldn't store it, so if you had some left over or whatever, you would make stew with it. And he was most nor- known for his meat stew. In Italy, usually it consisted of pork, but nowadays you'll find the stew. The stew is called squazzetto, and it's very popular work- with workmen because it's easy to make, it's cheap. And again, like today, you'll find it with other kinds of meat, but it's originally made with pork. And one day, while on break, one of the regular workmen bit into something hard, 
And that is the worst. I hate when you eat something and you get a texture or a taste of something that you're not expecting. It is you you don't want to eat it after that. Like you put it down, you're like, I'm done with this. I don't care what it is. Like I can ugh, ugh. anyway. The workman bit into something hard, and when he pulled it out of his soup, well, he pulled it out of his mouth. He realized that he had bitten into a finger. And the hard part was the nail. And not just any finger. A finger the size of a child's. With the nail still attached. The workman immediately went to the authorities. And as soon as they heard, the city guards ransacked Biasio's shop where they found the remains of several children. And Biasio was adding the parts of these children to all of his dishes. I mean, he was caught red-handed. The pun was not intended, but as I was saying that, I was like, that makes sense. He immediately confessed, but he himself didn't know how many children he had kidnapped and murdered. That's how you know it's so fucked up. Like, he couldn't even remember how many kids. The authorities never uncovered where he found all these children either. So we have to assume they were from orphanages or out-of-towners in some way. Because, like... That many kids can't go missing in one small area without someone noticing. Venice isn't that big, you know? So I'm sure it was a lot of visitors or, like I said, a lot of orphans, I bet. Which is horrible. But that is why he was punished the way he was. That is why they cut off both his hands, strung him around his neck, walked him through Venice, beheaded him, and then plotted four parts of his body around town like this is what you all will get if you do anything like this ever again of course if you visit that area today there are some ghostly energy entity whatever you want to call it horrible feelings of some sort especially the pillars because again they held a lot of executions between the two pillars not just executions but any kind of torture And so it's said that you're not supposed to walk between San Marco and Santo Daro pillar. So if you're in the square and you're trying to get around, don't walk between the two pillars. It's a curse. And if you're there at night, you may see Nicholas gambling with people between the pillars. You may hear screams from people being executed. 
between the pillars. Just keep an ear out, an eye out as always, head on a swivel, and thank you all so much for joining me. If you enjoyed what you heard, I'd greatly appreciate it if you like, subscribe, subscribed, and rate the podcast. You can follow Haunted Hometowns on Instagram and Twitter, as I mentioned, for photos related to each episode, guest info, and upcoming news. I know we haven't had a guest the last couple weeks, but I'm super excited for the next couple episodes because I have two really great, great, because I have two really great guests coming in to give you some stories. So that'll be exciting. And I would love to read your paranormal stories on the podcast. So please email me your stories. DM me your stories. DM me and email me your mom's stories, your friend's stories, your coworker's stories, whomever's to hauntedhometownspodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram or Twitter. Could be anything from your three-year-old daughter speaking Latin fluently to seeing your dead great-grandfather in the flexion of your toaster. Please let me know. And I will meet you all back here in a week because everyone loves a ghost story. I got my information from Wikipedia, Venetian Cat, Art Day 2000, Google Arts and Culture, Venice for Kids, because I'm a child, Ultimate History Project, and Traveler's Test. Check out the music of Tyre, the creator of this theme song. His Instagram is Queer Popstar, and you can find his music on all music platforms, Apple Music, Spotify, what have you, T-H-A-I-R. And the art is by the amazing Pepe Munoz. Follow him on on Instagram at p.e.p.e.munoz, M-U-N-O-Z. 